Hello, and welcome to Media Evil, a medieval pop culture podcast, where we talk about how medieval and medieval-inspired movies, TV, and books depict the medieval world. What do they get right? What do they get wrong? And what do they tell us about how modern people see the medieval past? I'm Sarah F. Decker, a medieval historian, and today we'll be continuing our discussion of Wheel of Time. So welcome back to former co-host Ollie Brady. Hey, Sarah. Um, it's great to be back. And I just want you to know that I have edited the first part of that video and cut out conservatively 45 minutes of me talking. <laughs> so hopefully our, uh, your listeners will have um, gone through that first episode and gone, this is refreshing how little <laughs> I hear Ollie's voice throughout this podcast. Hopefully you also cut out all of the uh, numerous animal interventions so they won't wonder what is all of that weird scratching in the background. I cut out most of it but sometimes Carmen's a little bit adorable so you know people people kind of want to hear that little yeah it's it's pretty cute uh, Murphy on the other hand he's just like ah, I'm old <laughs> Sarah, I'm not gonna do nothing um Sarah I think uh in this episode we're gonna talk about uh the religion in Wheel of Time and the links to actual medieval related stuff yes I'm very excited so let's get into it Sarah, could you talk a little bit about how race and ethnicity is is covered in the books? And and I will do my best not to be like, well, there's a white man. <laughs> I mean, well, you know, I'm also a white woman who is, uh, you know, contributing to this. But I will say I do appreciate this is a clearly a diverse pre-modern world. And I've talked about this in the podcast before, but like the real medieval world is, in fact, more diverse than, you know, people imply or assume or give it credit for. And in addition, again, it's fantasy. People are using magic. We don't have to like, you know, if we can suspend disbelief <laughs> about like, you know, people like burning people out of existence with magic fire, we can suspend disbelief about there being people of color. Um, so there are numerous different countries, each of which seems to have a predominant but not exclusive ethnic makeup. There are clearly people who travel to those countries. There also seems to be some amount of physical appearance seems to, to some extent, to determine how people kind of guess what country you're from, but also it's like accent in the way you dress. And so it is interesting is that it does indicate that there is diversity even in these individual, uh, even in these individual countries. And we have in particular cities that are clearly visibly multi-ethnic in a way that does very much recall to me some of these kind of cities of the Mediterranean that have these multi-ethnic and in the medieval world, multi-religious populations. So Abu Dhabi, yeah. Tyre, yeah. they are very, very Mediterranean yeah. inspired. Yeah. Um, I'm fairly certain that Abu Dhabi is meant to represent... Um, Italy. Yeah, that makes sense. And tear is meant to represent Spain. Yeah, no, and those both definitely make sense, yeah. And, uh, yeah, and so I, I do appreciate that, and the fact also, um, of course, uh, is where it is important to note that there is also a uh, predominantly black nation, uh, so the Shan Shan. The one thing that is, like, a little bit odd in some ways is that, like, we do then have the Shan Shan are the only place where slavery is legal, um, however, it is, I think, important to acknowledge that slavery, as it was in the medieval Mediterranean, is in no way ever race-based in this world. 
it's based, it seems, on a combination of basically kind of practicality and captivity. So some of the people who are enslaved under the Shanchan are people that like they just capture in wartime, but it's also then based on ability. So in particular, that the attitude of the Shanchan toward anyone who can channel, well, the attitude toward men that can channel is like, bye, you're dead, um, which is pretty much everyone's attitude. <laughs> and for which good, is as it should yeah, be. And like for good reason, yes. Um, and the attitude toward women who can channel, however, is that they are too dangerous to be allowed to exist and use their abilities independently. And so they are controlled with a magical slash scientific device, essentially, um, that there is this collar that they that is placed upon them. And they are then enslaved and essentially are unable to disobey the women to whom they are connected. And there is this kind of interesting dynamic that you eventually do find out that the women who are able to hold the other end of the collar are women who are like, would be able to learn how to channel. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, we, we probably should have brought that yeah. up is that there are two types of uh, channeling or conducting electricity, something which is naturally a conductor or can naturally channel and will always be able to do it or something which can learn yeah. to conduct electricity or can be forced to conduct electricity if they're able to do it. So think of it as a pure conductor versus a semiconductor. I didn't know anything about electricity, but, <laughs> um, but yeah, so you have these people who are, uh, so the Damana are the women who are able to lay, who are then enslaved. And then the Suldam are the, um, the, so yeah. Then, yeah. Um, are the people who like to whom they are then like directly enslaved. This then also has the interesting dynamic. So in addition to the fact that slavery is not race-based, uh, so many of the Dimana are local, but they also increasingly, especially as the book goes, as the books go on and the Shanchan become more active in these other lands, like, you know, they are uh, captive, they are capturing people from those lands. But it also has then the interesting connection to the real medieval world that slavery is predominantly a female phenomenon, or disproportionately so at least. In yeah. the real medieval world, this is because uh, much of slavery, like you don't have in the medieval world, you don't have plantation slavery. So, slant, uh, so slavery is essentially mostly domestic and including reproductive that you would basically expect slaves to produce other slaves and, and also produce children for uh, who might be the children of their master because they're being raped. And then in addition, when they're producing children, that also makes them able to serve as wet nurses for the children of their master or for other children who, you know, they would be like hired out to basically. Um, so, you know, this is obviously a very different phenomenon, but it does have the kind of interesting connection. And the other interesting connection is that one of the areas in which you don't have predominantly female slavery is uh, the Mamluk slave soldiers, um, where slavery is like essentially a military function. And that is, I would say, also kind of akin to the Damana in a lot of ways, because the assumption is like they are the ultimate weapon, because while the Asadai don't use the one power in battle, unless they're uh, unless they're fighting dark friends they're not allowed to or in or in self-defense yeah, it's, it's one of the one of the oaths they yeah. take, so they're not allowed to use it as a weapon unless somebody is directly attacking right them. or against dark uh, friends whereas or against dark friends whereas the demani um they, they don't have that limitation yeah. so when the shan can come over from um the far off distant lands of shan can so when they come over it's like 
party time. They, they're just blowing up armies left, right, and center because they can. Yeah. Whereas over here, or over here, yeah. God damn, over in Randland, as I like to call it, where Rand comes from, nobody can use it as a weapon unless right. they are evil. Right. And that's why a lot of people instinctively assume the Shankin are evil incarnate, but they're not. They're, yeah. let's just say, misguided. Yeah. Yeah, and I think there are kind of interesting hints at the end, especially like the fact that there is this realization that they have not fully grappled with, but that you get the sense that there may be in that direction of grappling with the fact that if you are a Suldam, that means that you too could in fact channel um, uh, that, you know, it seems like there's a kind of possibility of them perhaps going in a different direction. So, you know, we... We unfortunately do have this like one slave holding society and uh, there is something that like on the one hand, it's like, you know, I appreciate that to some extent it like undoes a kind of oversimplified, like it does, it, to some extent undoes like a kind of oversimplified analysis or very clear kind of mapping onto the real, say like early modern world that like that, but you know, but uh, on the other hand, it is kind of weird that like you do have the predominantly black country is the only place that has slaves hmm. now this is something i brought up with this before so i'm going to bring this up because i know that a few people that i have interacted with online are going to listen to this in things so i i just want to say this very very clearly there are a group of fans of the wheel of time who they're american and they have and as i'm saying this is july the fort where i am so Happy Independence This is also Day. July the 4th. But, or, oh, no, it's not July the 4th yet here. <laughs> it's July the 3rd. Tomorrow's July 4th. <laughs> Sorry, Sarah, you're in the past. Right? I don't know what time but it is. Or day. In, in the Wheel of Time, every country can be seen as, you know, an allusion to a real-world medieval stroke European country from the, the early modern period, right? So, as I said, there's the equivalent of Spain, there's the equivalent of England, there's the equivalent of, well, the Aiel represent Irish people living in the desert. It's hilarious because they're pale-skinned and red-haired. That's how they're described. Yeah. I'm not saying they represent Irish people. Robert Jordan described them specifically as a joke, mm-hmm. as what is the worst possible thing to have in the desert. He was like, well, I'm going to write all my descriptions of them as pale-skinned and red-haired. <laughs> And the only reason that they're ever described as dark-skinned is because that's what happens like to they're tan, right? people who've been under They get tanned. But anyway, that's beside the point. But, um, but everything else is representing a, a nation. There's no Americans. Obviously this, not. Right? So a lot of American fans, and this is not a small number, there are a lot of American fans who have somehow taken on the idea that the Shan Can, right, represent America in particular represent the Union or sorry sorry represent the Confederacy yeah, I think is insane or, and if it were true would be downright goddamn offensive it would be 100% offensive it, they, they reckon that it represents the thing they don't call it the Confederacy they call it Dixie because they don't want people to say you're clearly being racist here so they go it represents Dixie you know the southern right because you know the slaves and stuff and you're like going that is that is at the level of surface reading yeah that I would expect a child who sees a book that says see spot run 
thinks that all dogs should be called Spot. Right. Um, they have slaves. They are predominantly a black character. The best analogy for this would be that if all of the Europeans who were sent and started taking over African countries in the 1500s, 1600s, and 1700s, if they integrated fully into the society, created one mega country, put Mm -hmm. an empress on top of it, and then decided to come back and take Europe back. That's about as close as analogy as you're going to get to what the Shan can actually represent. Right. Country the Shan can represent. But to sit and say that it represents Dixie because they have slaves and it's a country on the other side of the world is some yeah, no, that's ridiculous. stupidest stuff I have ever heard. Sorry, just want to yeah. get it off my chest. Absolutely ridiculous. So all the time from, and I, again, I, I, I love Americans, um, some of you, um, but it's always American fans who do this. We are as a group terrible. <laughs> well, you're not. They're, they're all gonna, but it's it's again because I spent I spent so many years on lines and forums and stuff. You don't have to be represented book just because Robert Jordan is an American writer. He doesn't yeah. have to have an analogy to America. If you want to take an analogy to America in, then just say the two rivers represents small town America. Right. And it's like part of England, but it like kind of doesn't want to be and forgets England exists. <laughs> That's exactly what I like to say. And they always go, no, but it's so small. It was like, it doesn't matter. America doesn't have to be the it biggest. Like, just assume the two rivers represents America, was part of England and or, and is no. Or nothing represents America. America is also fine. Yeah, or nothing <laughs> represents America. Sorry, I just yeah. want to get over chest. If you are listening to this and you think that the Shan can in any way represent the southern United States, the Confederate United States, Dixie, you're an idiot. And you should maybe like check yourself and how you're thinking about the world and race. Um, Thinking about anything. And as I said, I do actually think it is a really important distinction that starting in the early modern period, essentially, slavery becomes race-based and there are justifications that certain groups of people, in particular black Africans, are suited to be slaves because of their race slash ethnicity. This is an early modern phenomenon, and this is obviously the and early modern and modern phenomenon. It is obviously the way in which slavery was defined in the American South, and you know, it is not how slavery worked in the Middle Ages. And as I said, the way that slavery works in the Shanshan Empire is much more like the way you see slavery working in the real Mediterranean. In that, like, anybody can be enslaved if you're basically unlucky. Also, I think an important thing about the Shankin is they are a predominantly black society. They are described in terms of ancient Japan. Mm-hmm. Like, they have an empress. They're, cast, well, I was going to say caste society, but they have layers to their society. And you're at a level and you can be moved up or down at the whim of the empress they the the way their interactions are described with the bowing the constant respect being shown mm-hmm. small mannerisms being taken as a a deadly insult like does it does like it's all reads as it's the best as well, like samurai like culture, feudal japan right or like yeah. feudal japan and 
I think that's what he was getting at. I don't think he was saying, it's, he was saying, this is a made up thing that represents everywhere. That's not the equivalent. And one of the things in general, I do actually think reading this, I, I see what you're saying about like the Spain and Italy comments, but on the other hand, like, I don't actually reading this see there being like, I don't actually see there being that like pure obvious analogies for most of these countries. Like I think most of the countries are in a lot of ways, like a blend of traits from different, like even parts of the world in the middle ages um, are then mapped onto these different countries. Like, I don't think any of them is like a pure, like this is England. He's taking parts of certain cultures and then using them as a starting point for the rest. Right. And, you know, I mean, the geography also clearly does not, like, map on to then what the real geography would have been. It's a world that in a lot of ways, like, is much closer together and united than, like, people of these countries that we've talked about are in reality in the Middle Ages, although, you know, to some extent a little bit more closely tied in the early modern period. Um, You know, so there are definitely, like, there, yeah, it's very much like there are jumping off points and connections, but nothing's quite one-to-one. Yeah, it just it's 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 well written. If you're looking for it, you'll see the connections. Yeah. You'll be like, oh, well, that makes sense. I mean, it's easy to make the connection between Andor and England. It's got a queen, symbol as a rose, like right. The, the, like the rest of the thing is not England. Right. Like I mean, you could talk about oh, London is because of X, Y, and Z, whatever, but it. It's not a, oh, these read like English people. No. They don't really, but they've got round-shaped helmets like Saxon Mm -hmm. army soldiers would have had and stuff like that. So, But again, they're all small things that are taken in from a bigger thing to make a bigger story. Yeah. So another thing that has, that kind of came up for me and, you know, and thinking about some of these different countries as well is the fact that I really appreciate that there's an actual goddamn economy. I, I knew this was going to like, as soon as Sarah was reading, it was like, we're going to be talking, we'll, we'll talk about the money. It's like, I'm an economic historian. <laughs> this is what I do. And it's, and like, you know, this starts me enough about Game of Thrones, and I won't get into that, but just the short version is Game of Thrones, there's no economy. And in real of time, like, there's an actual economy. Like, they, ha- they talk about, like, that there's, like, a famine and they have to deal with food supply. They talk about, and, like, what that costs and what that entails. Like, they talk about the fact that they have to pay mercenaries. They talk about trade and that, like, there's a trade war between countries. Like, and so I really appreciate that, is that, like, the economy exists and it matters in terms of how the world works and in terms of how rulership works. And then that also kind of gets into the fact that, like, there's a lot of socioeconomic diversity, which again is something that is true to the medieval world. Like there are not just lords and knights and downtrodden peasants. There are also like, this is a period of growing urbanization, which means that there are cities that have, you know, blacksmiths and textile workers and innkeepers, et cetera. And so like in merchants and these, in these groups of people who are consistently underrepresented in a lot of fantasy are really well represented here that we have uh, practitioners of artisanal trades. Like there's a whole scene, there's at least one whole scene that I remember that like they're talking about like buying dresses and like we're working with the textile merchants. There are innkeepers, there are a lot of merchants. Uh, you know, we have the mercenaries. Um, uh, you know, we also have farmers and the nobility, but those aren't the only people. 
And then there's the Aes Sedai who, you know, who don't have a kind of pure connection. I mean, you know, to some extent there's links to the medieval university system, but not purely so. But, you know, within the Aes Sedai that like, it's interesting that there are people who are essentially like political strategists and then people who are, um, you know, and people who are essentially kind of researchers and academics. So linked to that military thing and also like healers and doctors basically in the Yellow Aja. And so I, I really like that it, like, it, I think it's better world building inherently, but also it is uh, something that kind of ties it back to the real medieval world in terms of what you learn about it if you're doing anything beyond the, like, there were knights and sometimes they were nice and sometimes they were mean, <laughs> um, which is what, like, 85% of people know about the Middle Ages, to be honest. Sarah, all knights are bad. They always have been, always will Unless you're, unless they like work with King Arthur. Um, oh, of course. Yeah. That like, yeah, that like, that's what most people think of about the Middle Ages. And it's like, no, this is like, there is growing urbanization. There are universities, there are medical schools, there are law schools. And so I really like that you see more of that population in this world. And uh, that, as I said, I think it makes the world richer. I think because there's like an actual economy, it makes it make more sense and as I said, it is a kind of nice parallel with medieval reality. It's what what I like about it as well is well, I like everything, right? But um what I like about it is that we meet a character called Bale Doman mm-hmm. in the first book, and he's a river yeah. captain and he's on the river and he's sailing up and he's talking about his cargo in a way that makes sense. So he's like, I've got textiles here because they've got silks. So I'm heading upriver yeah. to where they can't uh-huh. make silk. And when I'm up there, I'm going to sell this for big money and I'm going to replace it with peppers, which are grown. I, I mean, from the way he describes it, I think he's talking about chili peppers as opposed to bell peppers. Right, they're but ice they're peppers, to, right, is the term used. And yeah, they're clearly yeah. like, yeah, they're clearly spicy. And he's going to sell there and he's going to load up on ice peppers and bring them back down because he's heading back down to Spain. Oh my God, Spanish food is known for being relatively spicy. And the spice trade is actually a big deal in the Middle Ages as well. And it makes sense. I also like the fact that the money makes Uh sense. It's not just, oh, coppers, silvers, gold. They talk about how different currencies yes. from different countries are worth Yes, they more. talk about currency so like exchange. Get... I love it. I love yeah. it so much. It's like a person goes into a shop and uses a Taravalan mark and they're like, so a mark is like a pound, right? Or a yeah. dollar, right? But he goes in and he pays with a Taravalan dollar and there's an exchange yeah. rate. It's like, oh, well, they're a heavier, better quality silver in yeah. the coin. So you get this, you're like, which is oh, cool because then there's also like they like, didn't actually ever talk about this, but there's like hints that like like in the real Middle Ages there are probably monarchs that like devalued the currency as a way to earn money. Yeah, it's also a metric system. Yeah. Um. So there's like ten copper pennies is one silver penny. Ten silver pennies is one silver crown. Right. Or sorry, hundred silver pennies yeah. is one. That silver. is not true to the real medieval monetary system, which is obnoxious as fuck. Yeah, oh, with the, the original one? Yeah, we right, they have this. like the 12 denarii, uh, yeah, the, the 12 pence uh, to a shilling, you know, in the English terms, the 12 pence to a shillings and 20 shillings to a pound. Because the basis goes back to the, the basis goes back to the Roman monetary system. 
which yeah. is crazy. It's cool. It's it's no, it's not cool. <laughs> you think it's cool? I think it's cool because I'm like reading these documents, and then I like because you know I take pride that like I read these documents and I like you know know how to like say like okay like how many like solidi is the Latin term uh, for shillings? So yeah, that like I know how many solidi are in a are in a libra. Anybody <laughs> who thinks that it's an acceptable system <laughs> to have twelve pennies to a shilling. 20 shillings to a pound therefore 240 pennies in a pound it's insane do you know how the <laughs> like, roman calendar works uh i don't know uh, probably per okay so in terms of how you refer to days and this is uh, a roman thing and then it also shows up in medieval documents and it's like still being used in the 13th and 14th century with the stuff that i look at that the days that actually like you refer to are the calends which is the first of the month the knowns, which is either the fifth or seventh of the month, and the ides, which is either the 13th or the 15th of the month. And you know based on how many days the month have, which is right, the ides of March. So then every other day is like the third of the ides of March. So that's how you would say the 13th of March is the third of the ides of March. And it gets even worse when you get to like the end of the month after the ides, then it's like, oh, today is the 17th of the cal. that to like, you would be like, oh, today is the 17th of the calends of January. And that means it's like late December. I'm not doing the math in my head about which day, about which day that would be, but it's so annoying. Sarah, how is uh, religion um, covered in the real time. And also, I can't believe we didn't mention the Spanish Inquisition. Yes. Who are running around wearing white cloaks <laughs> yep. for the entire series yes, of Yes, the, uh, the children of light, uh, or the white cloaks, uh, yes, are like very clearly the Spanish Inquisition. And it's really interesting also because like their like big thing is, is, is like that they, is that they're actually, I would say, um, disproportionately targeting women and like the Tarvalon witches. Oh, they definitely yeah. they are. They are so they have characteristics that are kind of linked to the Spanish Inquisition in terms of uh, like in terms of their structure, but then also uh, they um, are very much like the kind of early modern witch hunting, which like was actually it existed in Spain, but they were like more busy worrying about secret Jews than they were about witches. <laughs> so like the height of witch persecution is really like Germany, England, uh, France. I would say like those are the like big centers of bothering with witches. Sir, do you know what the do you know what the best way to find a secret Jew is? Mm-hmm. Secret hand. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> just uh, just for people listening, that's not me just randomly being racist. Sarah explained to me the concept of secret ham at one of the first times we met yeah, in that's... I was like, wow, that's actually genuinely fascinating. Yeah, like Spain has an excessive amount of like surprise ham and things, which, you know, I don't keep kosher, but I was a vegetarian the first time I was over there and like kept getting surprise ham and also had a very hard time like, explaining ham. things. I would be like, okay, I'm a vegetarian, no meat, no fish. And then they'd look at me, they'd be like, no ham. Um, <laughs> and then he'd be like, they'd be like, oh, okay. And then they'd bring me something and be like, this just has a little ham. And this happened like a lot. Um, and I am convinced and will one day, one day write the book about the fact that I am convinced that this is like a way of rooting out secret Jews of, and Muslims. It's also a good way to find the bad Jews like me who really like the secret. 
Well, it, apparently, even when you were a vegetarian. <laughs> no, when I was a vegetarian, when I was a vegetarian, I would like, I legit, like, I, I was with a friend when I was over there, and I would legit, like, pick out the little pieces of ham and give them to my friend who was, you know, not kosher or vegetarian or anything. And so my friend Abby would, like, eat all of these, like, little ham bits. Wow. Abby, I hope you're listening. Uh, it turns out that we now know that you're squirreling away ham. <laughs> So how does religion work in the Unitas? So uh, I would say a lot of it seems to be, and I'm not going to talk too much about it just because this is not really my area. It seems to be in terms of how they talk about like the wheel and the pattern. It seems to be more akin to Buddhism, I would say, than it does to like Christianity or Judaism or Islam. There are, however, like things here and there in terms of like the cyclical aspect and even like the reincarnation aspect, which you do definitely see in like Kabbalah, which is interesting in Jewish mysticism, which has like some weird reincarnation shit happening. Um, uh, so like the thing, uh, so like some of that definitely like, sorry, my cat was being weird. Um, so like some of that definitely <laughs> Uh, like connects in some interesting ways. But the thing that I thought was really cool that I first just noticed when I was reading is that, so you have the dark one and the dark one is, his true name is Shaitan. I know I'm not supposed to say it, right? Because he he must not be named. Thanks JK Rowling for stealing that shit. So obviously, you know, sounds like Satan. And in fact, the specific form that's used is uh, pretty similar actually to um, to the form in Arabic to to Islam. It's, it's, It's very much, you know, sounds basically the same. So, you know, there's clear kind of connections there to the concept of Satan slash the devil, um, which, you know, takes various different manifestations in the different Abrahamic faiths, but exists and is referred to to some extent in all of them. And then there's the Forsaken, who are cool because a number of them have names that definitely reference a a number of other uh, kind of demon, like kind of big deal demons, essentially. Um, Or actually, the the one other thing I was going to say about the Dark One and the fact that the Dark One is presented as being close to a power equivalent to the Creator. Hmm. The Great yeah. Lord is is true all things. I mean, sorry, the Dark One. I definitely didn't just call him the Great Lord. <laughs> that's how you know. That, that's what the bad guys call him. <laughs> also something J.K. Rowling stole, that there's like the way that you refer to Voldemort, that means that you're kind of with Voldemort, and the way that you refer to Voldemort, that means you're not. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So the idea of it like so it is almost this kind of dualist system where like good and evil are essentially equal opposing forces and uh, that was definitely a essentially minority and then explicitly declared heretical thread within christianity so the kind of early version of this is the manichian heresy the version which really pops up in the uh, like 12th 13th century is the cathars are uh, this kind of made this kind of uh, substantial group in southern France uh, who are essentially kind of followers of a dualistic heresy that would say basically that the devil is equally powerful to God. Um, yeah. yeah. What I like about this one and how it links back to you talking about history is the idea that God won that battle yeah. and has locked the dark one away, but that some people who are evil are trying to mm-hmm. release him, which is pretty much how the devil and yeah. being in hell and wanting to get to hell is represented. And we have people who are trying to summon mm-hmm. demons and, you know, summon the devil back up or, you know, get people impregnated with 
the devil's mm. baby. I, I've never seen Rosemary's Baby. It's directed by a pedophile, and I'm not going to watch it. But um, yeah, so effectively, uh, I like that system that yeah. they put in because it's really hanging a lamp on the idea of good and yeah. evil without saying this is God and this is the yeah. Devil. And the fact, as I said, like again, kind of connected to this dualist heresy, like the fact is, like I think it's, but also I mean, this is certainly something that shows up in. Uh, christianity and to some extent judaism like you can't actually like fully def- like you don't fully defeat and get rid of the devil like it's not like he's mm-hmm. dead and gone and this is even like something big that comes up at the end that rand at first he's like i'm gonna kill the devil and then like rand's like oh no actually that's not a thing that i can or should do yeah i can just lock you away and i can do as well as yeah. i can but i can't kill you because you need to be yeah, there. Yeah, which, yeah, I think is interesting. But yeah, but then as the other thing that I thought was fun as I was reading it was that I started to notice that a number of the names of the Forsaken are drawn from uh, Jewish and Christian demonology. So... Yeah, the Forsaken, uh, we kind of touched on a little bit. They are the, the powerful leaders of the Dark Friends, right? They're all evil male and female channelers. They don't go mad um because the dark one is protecting yeah. them from the taint that's on it in the men um the the easiest way to think about them is because there's 13 mm-hmm. of them is ishamel who's the leader is jesus <laughs> and then he has 12 disciples bad jesus and bad jesus uh, <laughs> and then rand and is good jesus he's the jesus and rand is good jesus which happens in book 12 where he becomes basically jesus rand <laughs> And he's such a hippie at that point. Like, hey, the flowers know, spring up. The flowers. flowers spring up as he walks <laughs> by. It's very cute. It's very cute. Yeah. It's so funny. Okay, so tell me about these uh, these demons. Yes. Yeah, so Asmodian, uh, the uh, member of the Forsaken that Rand like briefly captures, uh, that name clearly comes from the demon king Asmodeus, who uh, pops up first in the Book of Tobit and also shows up frequently in the Talmud. And uh, is considered in uh, Talmudic literature in particular to be the consort of Lilith, who is somebody who I'm going to talk about in a bit as not exactly as explicit, but I have thoughts. Um, I, I'm going to assume, I, I'm not reading your notes, and I don't know who Lilith is, but based on where Asmodian is in the books, I'm assuming Lilith is somehow connected to Lilith. Yes, I, yes, I have opinions about that. So, um, but yeah, right. so which... I don't, I'm not going to say I'm the first person who's thought of that before, but it was not, this one was definitely like not in the wiki. Like, you know, this is my, this All is right, my cool. independently formulated theory. I don't know who Lilith is, except okay. for Fraser's ex-wife. I will so, talk about that. You talk about Fraser's ex-wife? Yes. Actually, to some extent, <laughs> yes. Um, not like in a giant, like I actually have, I have not actually seen Fraser, and the only thing that I, and like, I, that's one of the very few things I know, but I actually feel like that's like extremely weird for reasons that will become clear when I talk about Lilith. Okay. Awesome. Um, yeah. So, but before that, we have uh, uh, Bel- uh, Belal, which is linked to Belial, who's one of the princes of hell. Uh, Ishamael's alias Baalzamon, uh, which is also kind of linked with the Dark One himself, uh, is not that different from Beelzebub, especially when you use the Hebrew, which is Baalzavuv. Mm-hmm. You know, not, uh, you know, a little a little changed, but not that changed. Uh, uh, Samael is another of the Forsaken. That's also the name of a, uh, of a figure who's in Judaism is seen as being this basically archangel who was like the mean one. Um, and she was the enemy of Israel. Well, that makes sense with Samael. 
Yeah. Um, yeah, to some extent, he actually even has a role in the Talmud, which is more like the, the role actually taken on by Satan in Christianity. Um, so that's clearly, and you know, it's, it's the same name, except that typically that Sama Ellen, the wheel of time is spelled with two M's and it's typically only spelled with one M in Jewish tradition. Um, there is also one non-Western or non-Abrahamic link, which is, uh, Raven is probably comes from Hindu mythology and a, to reference a demon king named Ravana. Uh, who was, by the way, known to have a number of lovers who were varying degrees of consensual. So uh, he was also um, arrogant, uh, which is yeah. Raven's entire downfall. Yeah. So yeah. So that's definitely a parallel. So, and then there is Lanfear, and. I am convinced, despite the fact that there is not any, any direct justification for this, that she is supposed to be a connection with Lilith. So Lilith is, Lilith is not actually in the Bible. But if you read the Bible, you know how there's like two different stories about the creation of men and women. First of all, I'll stop you there when you say if. <laughs> I know you read your Bible when, every day like a good Christian. When I read my Bible. <laughs> But, but go on. So if you read the Bible, there are two different stories of the creation of humankind. The first, in terms of, you know, the order of the chapters, is that it says basically God created, uh, God created people, male and female, he created them. And so implying that essentially he created them simultaneously. Mm-hmm. Then there is the version that is more familiar to most people, um, which is uh, that it says that woman was created from man's rib. Yeah, so men came first. Right, so that God just created Am I right, man. ladies? Am I right? <laughs> men came first and only. Um, <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, so, so, you know, the real reason that there are these two different passages, uh, you know, Sorry, biblical literalists and people who believe God wrote the Bible. The real reason is that God didn't write the Bible and they like mashed together two different (laughs) versions and they were like, fuck it, we'll keep both. Um, (laughs) These people actually think God wrote the Bible. (laughs) Some people still do. (laughs) That that was my very brief explanation of the documentary hypothesis. The explanation that some rabbis in, uh, oh, I think the earliest version is maybe the 5th century uh, came up with is that it's actually referring to two different creations. So that first, Adam was created with a wife, Lilith. And basically that Lilith didn't work out because Lilith was not sufficiently subservient to him and wanted to like do her own fucking thing and wouldn't have sex with him and therefore sucked. And so she took off and became a demon. Okay, so... I'm like starting to see. I'm starting to see where your land fear connection uh-huh. is coming in. Uh huh. And then Eve is created as his. Uh, and then the creation from the rib is basically got like Adam's like God the fuck, and God says like, all right, got it. I'll create this woman out of your rib, so she'll be properly subservient to you. And mm. that is the creation of Eve. So, uh, Lenfear has uh, this. Uh, sexual romantic past uh, with uh, Luz Theron and that is presented as like being to some extent the sort that she has essentially this kind of love hate thing happening with him 
um, which does, I would say, have some kind of connections to the like idea of basically like Lilith as this like first wife figure or first sexual partner figure who mm. then is leaves slash is rejected in favor of like the better one because she's more subservient and boring. Um, <laughs> and then also as an additional interesting corollary, Landfair is connected on a number of occasions with uh, the moon. Uh, she's referred to as moon hunter by the wolves, the name that she uses as her, uh, as her alias when she's pretending she's not Landfair for a bit of Selene, which is the moon goddess. Hmm. Um, and Lilith is also associated with, uh, the moon and with nighttime and in particular going and stealing and murdering babies at night. Wow. <laughs> and I, by the way, I think it is questionable as a choice in Frasier that they're like, let's name his first wife. Let's name his ex-wife Lilith, implying, I guess that she's a literal demon, like baby eating demon. <laughs> but anyway, uh, yeah, they're the Forsaken and, um, and they're linked to, to demons and stuff which is I, I would never talk i mean again i would have done a lot of looking at this stuff in the past and i for example i know about balal and balal as a character in the wheel of time gets something like 11 lines yeah and most of them are just before he gets killed by right. Moraine, uh because Bilal is the second best swordsman mm. from back in the day and he is trying to challenge Rand to have a fight mm -hmm. and Moraine finds out through the help of some brown sisters that Bilal was an amazing swordsman mm. and sees that Rand is about to fight Bilal and she's like uh uh and she Absolutely shoots him nut. Yeah, definitely not and she kills him which is great because mm -hmm. that's the first time one of the Forsaken dies mm -hmm. from a direct pure action of somebody who knows what they're doing there's a couple who die yeah. in the first book but like the green man kills one of them yeah um, and Sophista and uh, and Ran kills one without realising what he's at um, yeah so this is the first time one of the Forsaken was killed by a person who's killed by a Moraine because she's a badass she's cool yeah. Um also, just actually when speaking, does the green man have an equivalent historical figure or mythical figure? Yeah, I mean, that's a, uh, yeah, and the green man is a definitely, like, I believe, like, pre-Christian um, myth, uh, like, kind of pagan uh, myth. And, like, there are still, like, you can still see, like, green man carvings um, in various places, in uh, particular the British Isles, I believe. Yeah, that's what I was thinking, that, that yeah. he's, he's linked to pagan yeah. stories the idea of somebody who comes along and spreads growth and yeah uh comes comes with the spring effectively yeah and then of course the other obvious i will just at least briefly mention the other obvious connection to uh, medieval related things <laughs> is that there's like he's not i mean because he's not a character really i just think this is this is funny guys because <laughs> we're going going down through sarah's notes as we get this and i'm like what links could sarah find to the medieval period and i can well, obviously, what we're about to talk about. And I'm like, how did we get this far before this has come up? Um, so basically, this is a post-King Arthur work. Yeah, so it refers to Artur Pendrag Tenreal is his name. So obviously, Artur Pendrag, obviously, that's Arthur Pendragon. Uh, he's known as Hawk Arthur, as he's known as Artur Hawkwing. 
the reason we haven't really mentioned him is that it is like it's a post Arthur world, like, and he he doesn't really matter that much. <laughs> yeah, well, he doesn't matter that much, except that we find out. So it's a thousand years ago from Arthur Hawkwing, not ten thousand. Right. Um, we find out that Arthur Hawkwing, King Arthur, as as the a lot of the legends say that he went downhill in his later, you know, before he he died or whatever, that it was actually Moradin mm-hmm. who corrupted him. Which makes sense because that's the connection with Mordred, obviously, Mordred. based on yeah. the names. Yeah, and I I think that's really interesting. Yeah. Um, and it's so subtle that that's mentioned. It's just like I whispered in Hawkwing's ear and he... So Hawkwing's army, we mentioned the Shankin earlier. Hawkwing's armies are the armies he sent yeah. halfway around the world. And the reason that Moradin did this was to weaken him mm-hmm. because he wanted... If... Right. Again, so it's... You, we're going into details in the book that are into, and even details that aren't even really contained in the book that this is it's not fan theories it's logical stuff that makes sense and mm-hmm. Jordan has confirmed a lot of it so basically Hawkwing conquered everything right Right. so Randland is made up of 15 different countries whatever it happens to be I really like and calling it Randland I just, it's easy to <laughs> it sounds like an amusement park there's no name for the continent the idea is that Hawkwing had control of everything. And if he had control of everything, then if when the Dark One comes back, you mm-hmm. have a unified force who can fight them off. Right. So they wanted to find a way to stop that from happening. Yeah. So what he does is he gets in Hawkwing's ear. He's like, send half of your kids halfway around the world. Yeah. Get them to bring their armies with them. And the ones he sent were the ones who were actually most loyal, who still, a thousand years later, when they're coming back, are like, well, we're coming back to reclaim it. You know, we're coming back. Right, like Hawkwing. the Shan see themselves as being the heirs of Hawkwing. Yeah. They are heirs of Hawkwing because they're still technically loyal, even after a thousand years of development or whatever. Yeah. The rest Versus of Versus his empire completely fell apart, essentially, and got divided into all of these little countries. Exactly, because the other children spread out and started grabbing for power and this is my part mm-hmm. and this is my part so in effect Mordred brought down Hawkwing's empire yeah. and led to directly to yeah. the death of Hawkwing which then led directly to all of the battles that happened to lead to Emmonsfield being Emmonsfield and mm-hmm. the strong blood of the Manatharan people etc yeah but yeah but I actually I think that's cool that like it's it is set in this world and it's like there's this kind of like King Arthur actually sort of has the role in this book that Arthur had in like the imagination of like 15th century England. Yeah, as this amazing ruler who did everything right. Right. Yeah, and but you know like but you know he's but he was ages ago and like he's sort of shrouded in legend and in the world as it has like as it exists right now like he doesn't really matter that much because, you know, he's this, like, legendary dude who died a thousand years ago. Yeah, exactly. I, and I I really appreciate this, is that it's alluded to, but Hawkwing, even when, like, Hawkwing shows up because he's one of the heroes that we talked right. about. He's connected to the horn. So yeah, when so Matt like blows the horn, he pops up. But 
he doesn't pop up and is the best at everything. He doesn't pop up and is like, I will lead your armies now, boy. He just pops up and he's yeah. just a character. He's just like, well, I'm Arthur Hawkwing. What yeah. do you want me to do? Well, I'll go over and kill that guy for you. Like, and the heroes of the Horn are sort of like undifferentiated. I mean, except for Birgitta, which is a different thing that, well, we don't have time to get into her, I feel like, at this no. point. <laughs> yeah, um, well, we, I'd love to because I love her. I know, because she's really um, cool. But, yeah. but except for her, who essentially like is taken out it is brought into the current world in interesting ways which we don't have time to talk about except for her like they're i don't know if they're like they're kind of like there and they're useful and like that's nice and but like they're i mean they're barely even characters like and they're certainly oh, they're, not they're like, not. They like they're up. helpful but they're not it, like if you only had the horn and called the heroes of the horn like they wouldn't have won the battle if they didn't have other things going for them hawkwing shows up in two books that's it yeah um, yeah, because that makes there's the, two times that they blow the they blow the horn. horn. Uh, a couple of the others show up in Telar and Riyadh, right? Uh, the Dream World, but even yeah. then, it's two. Yeah, like it's not it's not a bunch of them, um, and then the two that show up are very specific. Yeah, characters, one of whom gets ripped out. Yeah, and into the real world when they shouldn't, which is awesome. Yeah, so. Like Arthur Hawkwing representing King Arthur is like the last of the real medieval connections. So I think we should go on to our next section, Sarah. And it's been a while since I've been able to do this. Yeah. But uh, let's go to Fabulanostra. I've been practicing. Um, where we talk so about <laughs> we talk about <laughs> what we would like to see version of this done as like normally when we talk about movies it's so much easier like what would you like to see in the movie version of this but i think in this section we're going to talk about what would you like to see happen in the tv series and what would you like to have seen happen after the books were finished now i can talk a bit about that because i know what was planned for after the books were finished but i can also talk about what i want to see in the tv show so sarah what would you like to see in the wheel of time tv show which is coming up so first of all, there are the things I will just say that I already know, which like, I, I think the cast so far looks awesome. Uh, in particular, the fact, by the way, that like, it is very much like a diverse cast in a way that I think is fully justified by the novel and also would be awesome and great, even if it wasn't. Um, and yeah, I am thrilled thus far with the casting that I have heard um, and very, very excited for it. Um, I definitely always have like, a little bit of anxiety about what happens when you adapt this kind of massive property to a TV show. Um, I hope I'm hoping they don't rush it. I would say like, that's definitely one of the things that I'm worried about is that they're going to try to do too much in the first season or two. um, And uh, that there's going to be too much that's going to get lost. Yeah. I am. I'm also worried about that, but mostly because I've been reading a lot about what they're planning mm. and it looks like they're going to try and condense two books mm-hmm. into a season and therefore aim for six seasons of a TV show. Now, I don't think they're going to be 12 episode seasons. So like they, they might yeah. be a 22 episode season, whatever mm-hmm. it happens to be, but that still seems yeah that ambitious, yeah. but you can also see why, uh, company even a company as rich as amazon wouldn't want to say 
where we're going to start a 15 season <laughs> or 14 season set of books. So they're going to have to cut out characters. Yeah. Uh, and they're going to have to cut out plots. Yeah. Which which makes sense. Like, I mean, it was always going to happen. This, yeah. As you said, 11,958 pages. You're going to have to cut out something. So obviously as a, as a long-time fan, I'm sad about that. But also, as long as they do a good job and don't just suddenly dilute it to this is a book or this is a show about Rand and only Rand. Yeah, that's definitely something that I definitely have a lot of concerns about, especially because, like, I think, like, Nynaeve's story and arc is fantastic. I think Egwene's story and arc is fantastic. Like, Matt's and Perrin's, I think, are... Matt certainly is. Perrin, I feel like they spend a few books dithering about exactly what they want to do with Perrin. Hmm. They they cast Perrin with a guy who's, like, a big dude. Perrin is meant to be a blacksmith's level size monster of man. <laughs> Um, so hopefully the dude works out. One thing that I I did want to actually point out is that um, the a- actor that they've cast for Lan is Asian American. Yes, and I think that's awesome, and he's a beautiful man, as Lan should be. Mm-hmm. Um, but also it's great because a lot of people do consider the Borderlands as representing, as right. I was saying, there's China represents China, etc. So I think it's awesome that they went with that that way of casting them and it's brilliant yeah i think that's really great and it is also like in terms of uh, like racial stereotypes prevalent in america like you do often see asian men represented as not being as stereotypically masculine as men of other backgrounds um Mm. like that is an unfortunate racial stereotype that you know is still prevalent in the u.s and i do enjoy this as a interesting counter to that I I hope so. Okay, so there's 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 so many things that I definitely did not notice when I was reading the book that many that like are linked to things that get revealed later that you point out to me, and I hope they keep those. Like I hope they keep like Varen lying in like I don't know late season one or whatever it's gonna be. Yeah, uh, like one one thing for example that I absolutely love is Ran's dad has a sword and. Rand gets the sword at the start of chapter two. Uh-huh. That sword is the mark of a blade master. Like it's yeah. a mar- it's it's marked as somebody who is exceptional with the sword. And it's not until the end of chapter fourteen, or sorry, chapter fourteen, book fourteen, that it pays off where yeah. Lan meets Tam and has the first proper conversation since book mm-hmm. one with him, and sees Tam using the sword, and he's like, oh. I always wondered about this guy. I always wondered why did a farmer in a small cottage in the middle of nowhere in Arse Backwards Land yeah. have uh, a blade master sword and now that I see you using it and he goes true blood blade master like uh, yeah. which is like a, the, for somebody like Land that's the ultimate sign of respect. I want yeah. to see stuff like that carry yeah. through where it's like a little bit that pays off in a huge way. The one thing with the casting that I'm a little nervous about is uh, casting Ruse Bolton as Tam Althor. That's so funny to me. It's like, bad like, guy, always bad guy. Oh, now he's Tam. 
Oh, and like but he's like the goodest of good guys. Yeah, because like Ruth seems so sinister to me, and Tam seems so like nice and wholesome. Yeah, but I, I he's a good actor, so hopefully, yeah, he can pull it off. But um, I feel like I'm just gonna have this like visceral distrust. Like, what's Tam Althor gonna do? Is there anything you're worried about in terms of the TV series? Anything that I'm worried about. I am, I will say, I'm a little, I'm a little worried about, as we've talked about, I think Jordan did a great job with his female characters. I am worried about whether they are going to do an equally good job in the TV show. Um, especially because, I mean, this is obviously a different situation, but in Game of Thrones, where I feel like they basically ruined the female characters in the last season, um, so many feelings. Previous episode. Oh, yeah, um, well, they, listen, it happens to all girls her age where the period starts. And you just go I nuts mean, and murder and you just go nuts and burn down an entire city, like. Yeah, and so, you know, I mean, I I guess I don't actually know this offhand. I'm assuming that there's mostly men responsible for the, the writing. They're mostly men uh, that are writing it, but um, the guy who is the showrunner has been saying all the right things. Okay, like I've, yeah. I've been looking up in interviews. His name is Rafe. I can't remember his second name off the top of my head. Long, I think Long Yan, something like that. And he is, everything he says is, no, we understand the female characters mm-hmm. are super important. Um, we don't care that the first three and four books that they are seen as overpowered by the thing. He's like, if you're the kind of person who gets uh, turned off or you don't like the idea of a strong female character, just don't bother watching yeah, the show. That's good. We, we hope to get enough fans without you basically yeah. being a toxic fan. So yeah, that's good. Um, the other thing that I'm just really curious about is I feel like to some extent, I don't have a hundred percent a handle on exactly what the physical, like what the magic looks like, like yeah. what it looks like when somebody channels and I'm really looking forward to seeing that visualized. I really want, I, for years, genuinely years, I thought that it would be impossible to represent the magic mm-hmm. of the Wheel of Time on screen. And then I saw Doctor Strange, uh-huh. right? And Doctor Strange, I, have you seen the Doctor yeah. Strange movie? You're right. So the way Doctor Strange represents his magic and it, yeah. it pops up as three-dimensional right. figures in the world around him and instead of just like something happens because he thinks about it. like uh, we we obviously we've talked about Marilyn before mm-hmm. like yeah. Marilyn <laughs> looking at something and Marilyn's eyes glows and then some glows. guy dies exactly whereas <laughs> whereas you look at him he has his object around his neck which could represent an angriel or a sangriel yeah. and then he makes a hand movement and stuff physically appears in the world like I can see that representing, like bending the world to walk around. I can see that yeah. representing Taylor and Riyadh. To me. And they are like, visible. Like they talk about people who channel are then able to see the weaves. To see the weaves. So I imagine the way that they would do this is that they would show it as different colors and the people manipulating the colors and then yeah. making it. And then it would show up. Now, I think they w- they would go light on that Right. For the first couple of seasons in the same way that they went light on dragons. Yeah. Until they hooked people in 
yeah to uh to the first season of game of thrones and then at the end oh eggs oh my god there's dragons uh one thing that you've just mentioned here is what would have happened in the books after finished it. yeah so i can talk about that because uh again i, I do a lot of i mean i was immersed in this for for many many years so there was planned to be two sets of outrigger novels mm-hmm. one of them was going to be about tam Roose bolton and how he came <laughs> to end up in the position he was in mm. to find rand on dragon yeah because it's alluded to a little bit and the idea is that he left to go adventuring and find himself in the world uh joined up with the army of a particular country um it's Korean. I don't know why I said mm-hmm. particular country because we've been spoiling it the whole way through. But it joined <laughs> up with the Korean army, uh, trained really hard, became a blade master, mm-hmm. got into the private guards of the king. The king cut down a very sacred tree at some stage, which mm-hmm. is like the world tree of his end And uh, the Aiel came out to kill him, basically, and they chased him down the thing. And basically, it's going to be that story. Yeah, and cool. a lot of people, myself included, believe that uh, Tam's father is actually the person who killed the king to end the war. Oh, uh, because the king is renowned as being a blade master. Mm-hmm. And because Rand later on gets his sword. And it was said that he was cut down in one-on-one combat. Mm. Tam has a blade master sword. In order mm-hmm. to get a blade master sword, you okay. have to kill Not a blade master. master. Yeah. So for him to get that rank, he'll have had to have fight the Blade Master at that time. So the likelihood is that he is the one who killed Laman mm. for his sin, and effectively Rand's dad ended a war. And that's yeah. what the first huh. one was going to be about, which I think is awesome because I love Tam. Yeah. Uh, and then the second one was going to follow Matt, my favorite character, mm-hmm. and he's married to Tuon. Um, they got married by saying we're married. <laughs> <laughs> well he funny. first said like it where he first said like oh we're married you're my wife because he had this like weird vision and then somebody was like by the way that means that like if she says it back to you at any point you are now legally married and he was like what what yeah and then she did so now he's married <laughs> to another of shankan the place that owns slaves and what jordan was originally planning was that the second so there'd be a set of outrigger novels so there was going to be three novels which focused on matt mm. and two one which is his wife going back and removing slavery mm-hmm. that would be really interesting and separating it out um especially since the, uh, he somehow manages to make two one likable mm-hmm. despite the fact that she's fighting for for slavery, slavery. <laughs> yes um, Chuan, initially because of that, I was like, no, Chuan's terrible. I can't like her because she was, you know, she was like, slavery is great. Um, but she really grew on me. Yeah, I think I think a lot of it is because you can see that she wants to keep the empire together. Yeah. And also, she's a sultan herself. Right. Which and means so that she, like that the means, implication yeah. is that she would be a Damani if the word got out that Sultan can do yeah. that. So I assume that was going to work its way into the thing. Yeah. Also, just for the other record, because uh, I need to bring this up, Matt has a medallion that stops people who use magic from being able to directly attack him with magic. Yeah. And it's fucking deadly <laughs> because it's, it's it's just like, oh. And <laughs> he also gets attacked by a golem at some stage. I know it's not how they want you, plants, but it's an unliving, unkillable monster. 
Right. Goal. I mean, obviously another, another referent is the golem. Yes. But, but, you know, but there's a way to kill the golem that, you know, in, in Jewish legends that Matt does not take advantage of. So. Well, wait, what's the way of killing a golem in Jewish legend? Just in case I ever get attacked. Yeah. Again. So um, written on the forehead of the golem is the word emet, which in Hebrew means truth. And if you, so if you erase the first letter of that, then it says met, which means death. Excellent, excellent. Yeah, you hear that, Golem? Next time? I gotcha. I'm going to fuck up your Cause, forehead. Because all I've been doing is like writing stuff in notes and shoving it in his gob. <laughs> and what I've been saying is don't kill Ollie. <laughs> so... I just have to do it every now and then because like whatever golem digestive system works. Um, once it's gone, it just starts trying to kill me again. Ah, someday you do it when I don't have a pen. But no, I just need to take off that first letter. Um, anyway, Sarah. Yeah, so that's that's basically the, the TV show looks good and promising. Yeah, I'm um, excited. I, I do want to say one thing about um, uh, Toxic Fans again is they cast the roles and mm-hmm. uh, there's a lot of people of color in there. And uh, a lot of people were, you know, oh, I can't believe they're having this, blah, 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 blah. You know, oh, I can't believe this person with this level of dark skin would be cast as Egwene or whatever it happens to be. Um, But I did then come across one of the funniest things I've ever read um, because I couldn't tell if he was being serious or not. And he was like, oh, I've been reading these books for 20 years now. And I've always thought about Egwene as like a sister to me. But the actress they've cast is just so hot. <laughs> I don't know if I'll be able to look at her the same way. It's like going, what? How can somebody be that clueless? I mean, she's I a beautiful love woman. When you have men's criticisms of casting, are I want to have sex with her too badly. And I've heard that multiple okay. times. And it's like, oh, come God. on, dude. Let's move on to our next thing, which is the rating segment of the thing. Uh, the enumeratio. <laughs> <laughs> I'm leaving that in, even if I cut the last conversation we had out, because I just want to hear people <laughs> hear me break my shit laughing. Please uh, Sarah, what would you rate this on a scale of uh, one to five? I'm giving it a five. I'm going to do it. I think that like, I think this is, I think it's really amazing world building and I love the characters and, uh, you know, it's not, it's obviously not like a perfect verisimilitude of the medieval world, but like, I really like how, I really like what they use from the medieval past as well. Like, which is obviously not the only criteria in the world. Like I also, like, I love these. Like I, I spent like the last like year and three months reading them and like, really deeply enjoyed it the whole time you know and that's that's a long time to like devote to reading a thing like basically in a row um with as i said with the exception of uh, every now and then i'd stop in between books and read something else that i really wanted to read but you know like i spent a lot of time like choosing to be immersed in this world and feel like it was worth it which you know is a nice feeling excellent I, i'm glad you said five because otherwise i would have been like super sad so <laughs> Uh, I'm assuming the uh, you can give an extra star thing exists in this. And I don't think I give an extra star to um, 13 Warrior. So 13 Warrior, I, I love it, right? It's great. But it, it's not a six star movie. Like, I, I just have you're, doing, it, right? you're doing the six star. 
I'm going to give a six star to this. And the only reason I'm giving a six star is because I didn't want to say, oh, it's 10 stars. <laughs> um, I've read hundreds of fantasy books, thousands of fantasy books, probably. Jesus Christ, probably. Yeah. Um, I've read most of the, the big fantasy series or whatever. Like, I understand that this is a super long commitment, right? Like, if you're starting to read this and you decide to keep reading it, it's going to take you a long time, right? Like, to put it into the easiest context is that if you took all of the words which are written in Lord of the Rings mm-hmm. and put them into the Wheel of Time, you'd have six chapters left of book one <laughs> of Wheel of Time. That's that's true. Like, that's huh? word for word. That there's You'd have six full chapters left of Wheel of Time when you're finished. And people love the world, the, the Lord of the Rings and it it's like, oh, it's amazing and it's so dense. And you're thinking, that's it's not even the first book. So to take this in and go into this world is a huge commitment for you to take. Yeah. But if you do, nothing in the fantasy genre is as rewarding as this. There are lots of people who will tell you, Game of Thrones is better. There are lots of people who will tell you Brandon Sanderson's own work is better. And I'm not going to tell you that for an individual person, it's not, right? Because if you happen to prefer Brandon Sanderson's style of writing, that's okay. If, in the case of George R. Martin, you happen to prefer reading about rape over and over and over again and nothing but atrocities carried out and everybody is a bastard even the good characters are bastards like that's fine i get that and if that's your brand of realism then again that's fine i don't think anybody who genuinely gives the wheel of time a chance will not love the set of books it's my favorite fantasy series if you read it you love it and if you don't that's fine yeah. We're allowed to have different opinions on. Yeah, and I really enjoyed it. You know, I uh, I also like Game of Thrones. That you know, I like a lot of fantasy series. I you know, I I like a lot of. I also love Tolkien. Um, you know, and but like I, I think this is one of the like strongest and most interesting and like fantasy series that I've read. It's one that I feel like will really stick with me. Um, and yeah, I absolutely recommend giving it a shot if you are up for the potential commitment of. 15 months-ish. Yeah, it's a, it is a lot. Yeah. So, so Ollie, where can people find you on the internet? You can't, Sarah. I am... You're elusive. I'm, I'm like a ghost. I mean, you can find me in the Media Evil group, which is based around this because I have to start it. Um, but the other thing I was just going to say is rather than try looking for me, I think people should try looking for more interesting history related stuff so what i'm gonna do now is i'm gonna recommend a website or a website a facebook page called archaeology uncovered Mm. which i happen to be a member on and i know sarah has looked at a couple of times as well Mm -hmm. and it's basically academics and interested people who post really really interesting articles covering pretty much anything that that could be described as history so since i've been there a couple of weeks now and you'll come across I mean, articles about ancient Viking settlements being uncovered in New Zealand and mm-hmm. uh, or down as far as articles written about the compulsion of Spanish uh, regulars to try and fix um, paintings 
and murals <laughs> and ending up oh, making wrong. So because you you'll find the whole gamut of mm-hmm. stuff. So it's called Archie Uncovered. It's on Facebook. I am not in any way affiliated with them whatsoever, but I am a member. They are all really, really interesting people. They're all really progressive and they all really enjoy having a conversation about history. As you know, I'm a history fan, despite the fact that I am a very, very sexy physicist. Uh, I still enjoy talking to people about who know way more about stuff than I ever will. And that's why I started the podcast with Sarah in the first place. Mm-hmm. And it's why I, I like to hang out in that group. So go to Archaeology Uncovered. Awesome. And the last thing I'm going to say is if you do get the Wheel of Time and you happen to be an audiobook listeners, the audiobooks for the Wheel of Time are some of the best done you ever come across for every male POV they have a guy read them for every female POV they have a female read them a female <laughs> they have a woman read them and they're both excellent and yes. they don't they don't put on like weird accents or anything like that they just read them out and it's it's really well done except for when they're in tear in which case she does <laughs> Kate's her name and she she slurs her speech because I think it's pretty funny she's like <laughs> See, I want to hear the Shan Chan drawl. Yes, that's that's also done too. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, Sarah, where can people find you on the internet? Well, you can, of course, find me on this podcast. And if you have enjoyed it, please subscribe in your preferred podcaster app and rate and review Media Evil and Apple Podcasts. I will read new five-star reviews in future episodes if you're listening to this, write a review so I can read it. I haven't had any in a while. Wait, I I have I have one here. Oh. Um uh it says uh bring back that sexy physicist guy. Sorry. It's my it's my mom again. <laughs> Continue, I need to tell if your mom listened to the podcast. My my mom does she, she want to guess? Uh oh my god, you would not <laughs> want my mom as guess. She'd be like, when are we talking about the Protestants, is it? Anyway. <laughs> Sorry. You could have I a double you, mom episode. Oh, my mom and your mom would get on great. That'd um, be fun. They'd probably kill each other. <laughs> Please also follow the podcast on Twitter at Media Evil Pod and join the Facebook group as mentioned before. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Sarah If Decker. And also, if you have any questions or suggestions, I'd love to hear from you via email at media.evilpod at gmail.com. I will at some point sometime soon potentially be starting to solicit questions if you would like to do an Ask a Medievalist and uh, perhaps include that as a segment on the podcast. So what was what was that noise? Oh, it was an email coming through. <laughs> Just click on it there. Oh, we have a question. Can we get more of that? Ma'am. <laughs> God damn it. <sighs> She's your biggest fan. <laughs> she is. <laughs> so, Ollie, thank you so much for coming back on Media Evil. Yeah, I, I couldn't not come back and talk about Wheel of Time. You're going to need to find something else that I love that's somehow tangentially cre- or connected to the medieval world in order to get me back. Um, I, I mean, I could conceivably come back for Prince of Tees. Yeah. Or the man in the iron mask. But anyway, yeah. it's always a pleasure, Sarah. And the podcast, just in case people uh, don't, because uh, I don't mention this one, the podcast is way better without me. Oh. <clears throat> That's not a joke. It really is. So uh, I'm sorry for ruining it for people. You did not. Back. <laughs> uh, Sarah, 
Always a pleasure. I'll say bye-bye. All right. Goodbye, and thank you for listening to Media Evil. Thank <laughs> you.